This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. And I'm David Leet. Each episode, we talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter, if you still know what one of those are, and join us. David, today I'm honored to introduce you to my favorite writer in the world, period. I mean, I named a dog for one of his characters. So what more do you need to know? Well, maybe this. William Kennedy's Albany cycle of novels includes Legs, Billy Fallon's Greatest Game, Ironweed, the winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award, Quinn's book, Very Old Bones, The Flaming Corsage, and Roscoe, for whom I named a dog. He's been the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant. He's written plays and a screenplay for a Francis Ford Coppola film, The Cotton Club. He created a masterful children's book with his son, Brendan, and is at work producing one of his plays right now and is writing a novel. In upstate New York, where he and I both live, we've done everything but name an ice cream flavor for him. <laughs> so let me introduce you to one of my favorite people on earth, William Kennedy. Good afternoon, young lady. <laughs> Mr. Kennedy, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's uh, very pleasant to be here. It's always pleasant with Marion, she's um, um, ubiquitous in in the area, and uh, and I I know she's uh, she asks a lot of embarrassing questions. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's Marion. So, uh, Bill, you know, as you know, Cordy, our podcast is all about writers. So I want to jump right in. I want to start getting some advice from you. Specifically, I'd like to talk about place with you. A place like anything that you love can be really difficult to portray. You can't make anyone love what you love. So you can't walk up to someone and say, hey, love Albany, New York the way I do. Yet you're writing. You've made people so adore being in Albany. When did the idea that Albany as a place of fiction could shoulder so much work and stories from you? It was in Puerto Rico, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I would say probably 1958, mm -hmm. 59. I was mm -hmm. uh, 59, yeah, that was it. Uh, I was, uh, uh, I had written a novel. I was a newspaper man, and I worked in Puerto Rico. And then I went to Miami, and I had a great job covering the Cubans. The revolution was on. Fidel uh, had just—that in 59. I, I was down in 57, but he came in as a, a, and uh, landed from Mexico in 59, and uh, uh, that's not true. That's not true at all. Uh, he was—that uh, uh, was the when the revolution— uh, reached its climax. It was great coverage. It was a great newspaper uh, job, and I, <clears throat> I really loved it. But uh, I was convinced I wanted to write a novel, and I was still sort of thinking as a uh, a journalist and uh, as a um, 
as a, uh, an emulator of uh, Hemingway and Graham Greene, oh, yeah. who roamed mm-hmm. the world and uh, found their uh, subject matter in exotic locations. And, <clears throat> and that was uh, really the way I thought about it. And I had, I had Germany. I'd been in two years in Germany for, during the Korean War. And I, and uh, and then I was, uh, you know, here there I was in Puerto Rico. Here I was in Miami with the with the Cubans, and uh, I mean uh, they all had their uh, way of uh, beckoning to me as a source material for uh, for the novels that I thought mm-hmm. I would write if I could ever finish one. But I uh, anyway I I finished one and it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't about any of those places. Uh, it was about Albany for some reason or other, but it was. Uh, it was just. It wasn't really about Albany. I didn't even call it Albany. I called it Thurston. What a terrible name! <laughs> I, I, I've <laughs> hated that name ever since I named the city Thurston. But uh, you know, I. So I, I threw it away and. Um, and I started another one, and um, and I can remember I was starting to write a novel on Puerto Rico after I finished that first one, and mm-hmm. uh, writing short stories on Puerto Rico, and um, and uh, I don't know how I made the leap in the transition, but um, something compelled me to to write a story about Francis Phelan um, and start the start a story of the the family of Francis Phelan and um I hadn't really done anything like that before done in any of the, my own family uh, but here it was uh and um, I wrote I don't know. Uh, I wrote that first chapter of, of, of what was then called uh, One by One. Uh, not a very good title, uh, but uh, in, in, uh, as soon as you finish with one, you, you go on to the next one, and you know that you're all done with the first one, and that doesn't necessarily accumulate as a story. It wasn't a very good title from that point of view. Anyway, it was... <clears throat> I, I was writing about it, and I, I had written so many stories on Puerto Rico, and I don't know, they just didn't sing for me, and uh, I, mm-hmm. there was something missing, and I don't—I didn't know what it was, and um, and I had um, I had taken uh, you know plenty of notes on Puerto Rico, and but. And then I started to write about this uh, Francis Phelan. He wasn't married. He was just a guy who was on bum and coming home for his mother's funeral. And, and he comes into a saloon and he rams around in the saloon and uh, alienates about half a dozen people in about 10 minutes. Yeah, he and, does. And uh, <clears throat> then anyway, so that was the... Uh, that was the nature of uh, uh, this piece of work. And then I carried him forward as he heads home. And uh, there was something that happened in the course of writing about that. And it was about 
my knowledge of Albany uh, that I mm-hmm. didn't know I had. I mean, it was in the unconscious. It was anyway. It was a. Uh, uh, and and the, the 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 piece started to sing, mm-hmm. and it, it talked to me. So uh, that that was the beginning. So it starts to sing, and but when a place is 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 one's home, and you write about it, the obvious blunder can become that you get too sentimental, or you get a sentimental attachment that can rarely be portrayed well in prose. It's like going home with your spouse to see his place of birth, and you get the tour, you know, the schoolyard, the place that he went to the Boy Scouts, the high school. But the story frequently, I see this with writers all the time, the story remains in the heart of the tour guide, but isn't felt by the viewer. So how, nobody can accuse you of mere sentimental portrayals of Albany. Mm, So how did you avoid that just purely sentimental voice? Well, I, I grew up as a newspaper man, you know. <clears throat> From high school, I wanted to be in the newspaper business. I, when I was a sophomore, I think I got on the, the school paper, and when I graduated, I immediately insisted, uh, was part of why I went to Siena, uh, that, that, that I could get on the newspaper the first day of class. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Actually, I got on it before during the summer before class started <clears throat> but it was that that I was really really committed to the newspaper business and when you're a journalist you know you, you have an objective sense of uh, of reality and uh, that's that's what I was looking for I you know I I, I sentimentality was uh, was the enemy and I, I knew that that's uh, the saccharine Stories and uh, that uh, wasn't something I was going to pursue anyway. But uh, but my my uh, quest is for uh, some reality that's authentic and true, and not just my my feelings for it. It's it's uh, it's it's what how I see it as a reporter, as a, as a journal with a journalistic. Uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that that, in, in a sense, uh, kept me from, you know, from the get-go, uh, stopping uh, in, in sentimentality right in its tracks. You know? Yep, makes sense. I don't know that mm-hmm. many sentimental newspaper reporters. <laughs> well, there are there are plenty of them. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a reporter in Albany at any given time? Oh, sure. Oh, I yeah. was there for, yeah. for, for uh, from 52 to 56, and then again from six, 70, no, from uh, 63 to 70. Mm-hmm. At the so, see, so place becomes, Albany becomes a place in which the characters inhabit, but at the same time, Having been a journalist, you're able to move it around as a three-dimensional object and look at it from all aspects without falling into its allure. And I think that is what makes the writing so exquisite, is that you have such familiarity and you have the understanding of the characters in place, but yet at the same time, you're writing about something in a dispassionate way as the writer. And that, I think, is what makes it so powerful. Well, um I had the feeling that uh, that uh, I had to do that. That was built into what I learned from 
reading Faulkner or reading Joyce, I mean, uh, his characterizations, Joyce's, you know, look at how he portrays Bloom, how a wonderful character he is, but the, the flaws he has. And uh, the same with uh, uh, Faulkner's people, uh, uh, Joe Christmas, um, a black guy, mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, he's not a, necessarily a very nice guy, <laughs> and then he turns into a murderer. But he's a uh, he's a very sympathetic figure in yep. in, in, in Light in August. Anyway, uh, that's something I I felt in my bones as a writer that that was the way you had to you had to do it. You have to you had to be very cold and getting you have to get into the the negative and the positive side of it. You know, otherwise you're just uh, you know portraying uh, you're, you're doing a, uh, a a puff job on the character and uh, nobody wants that nope. nobody wants to read it nobody wants to write it uh, but but we well, often do because that's the way we feel about the character and it, that's how it comes out so but, in literary uh, terms Albany was never known for producing volumes of literature um, but and certainly not literature that portrays Albany as being the bare-knuckle fun that you portray it to be. So now you're eight books into what is now your, known as your Albany cycle. And I've read, read many quotes from other writers about how you did it, and they all center on your language. And um, every place has its history, but your syncopation, I mean, it's history that can be told, but it, your syncopation, your feel of the words, we literally feel them in our mouths, your delight the precise shuffle I feel in the feet of the people dancing, the music in your sentences, the clack of the billiard balls that I remember from from legs, and that crisp dialogue when one dirty Paul is convincing somebody else to vote the dead. You know, these are remarkable experiences, but they're beautifully put. And I know that language is a form of annotation. It's it, We draw it from everything we've heard and felt and seen and tasted. But I wonder... That combined with your amazing imagination, of course, is what makes you you. But I wonder, what do you attribute this this feel for the language to? I feel uh, that um, I was always uh, knocked over by the language of James Joyce, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. when, I, when I read the, his short story in the Dubliners, uh, The Dead, mm-hmm. the language in that story is unbelievable. Uh, it's so exotic and, and, and so beautiful and so on the money for what's happening to that character and the penetration that's it's language is how you get to the to the uh, the inside of the people you figure out how how they talk what are they saying and how are they saying it and uh, or what are they thinking it's a, it's a uh, it, it's you're you're taking dictation in a certain way from yourself, <laughs> but I, you know I'm I'm being a reporter again. I'm you know you 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 um you report on the in, the inside of these characters. You you interview yourself about him uh, or her until you you know 
over and over I talk to myself on the page, you know, and I make these voluminous notes, and and then you know, suddenly it says, all right, time to stop the notes, write write a column, write a sentence, you know. <laughs> Listen, writer, it's time to stop the notes and write a sentence. Yeah. And and you know, it's uh, you, you realize you've got enough uh, to go with, so. Uh, it's all taking, uh, you know, direction from your unconscious, and uh, which I believe in so sincerely. I mean, that's uh, I, I cultivate trying to fall into daydreams. Uh, so I'll I'll have a I'll dredge up something from my. Uh, sleep cycle while I'm still awake. <laughs> because dreams are so interesting and uh, they uh, they fascinate me and I always take notes on them. And sometimes I get up and write for an hour on the basis of a dream. Uh, write, write about the dream. I mean, so suddenly it's, it means something to me and I, I try to explain it to myself and Sometimes it works very well, and I can use it in a piece of work somewhere, or it leads to something that's different. Uh, sometimes it doesn't mean a thing. It's just wacko activity and language that doesn't ever translate into anything meaningful. But it's always fun, even so. <laughs> Would you say that that exploration you have of, of language that may never make it to the page is an important way, an important part of the process to find that musicality, to find the uniqueness of the voice of these people and also of the story. I find, I find that the, the language is, it's not everything, but it's almost everything. <clears throat> and when you think of the work of William Faulkner, which I, after I mm -hmm. got off my <clears throat> um, cover the world uh, for uh, my no my novels uh, from Graham Greene and Hemingway, I, I, I really settled on to Faulkner and I just kept reading <clears throat> everything that he wrote uh, that I could handle and and for a couple of years I couldn't handle it very well. I mean, so I had to keep rereading it to understand the sound and the fury and the uh, Absalom Absalom and, uh, and so many as others. As I lay dying. Some, uh, as I lay dying. As some, so many others. Mm -hmm. And then short stories. I was obsessed with his short stories. I just couldn't. I read them over and over again. Same. I did the same thing with Hemingway. Hemingway's language is very different, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it seems like... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, minimal language, but it's 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 hard to do, and it's um, and it's uh, and it's it's beautiful in its own way. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, and, and, uh, uh, but those two guys are so uh, radically different from each other, and and yet the the language is is what dominates in in both of them. And uh, so I I became obsessed with the language, and yet, yet you can't. You can't uh, use Faulkner's language, and you can't—it's so easily detected uh, when you start or start to write a Faulkner sentence, or you you Hemingway is—I uh, <clears throat> um, 
I know that Hemingway is, a, is so widely imitated. It's, it's, it's easier to imitate than Faulkner. But anyway, it's a, it's a, it's essential. And that was a, a, a quest that I had been on from the beginning to find my own language and my own style of writing. And, 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 and I'll tell you about how, I, how it all came out. Yeah. Next, well, time, next no, question. Do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think we'll drag it out of you. So there's an enormous amount of history stashed in every one of your books. And we get American history. We get political history. We get the history of the Hudson River. We get – but what – we get a lot of, of what happened here, of course. But what really interests me is how you move over that taxonomy of corruption – and how it's inherited and how it moves through people and how power and influence flows like DNA and families and groups. And it's really too easy to say things like, oh, that's Chicago. Oh, that's Providence, Rhode Island. Oh, that's Albany. And not think it through. Think it through to this kind of flowing taxonomy, this, this almost unconscious that flows from one generation to the next. So why does Albany make such a gorgeous place to inform us about what spawns in that theater of political corruption? Well, it's from the beginning. I'm writing a book now which is ridiculous. Uh, it's so vast and it's... Uh, uh, scope. It's, uh, I, I want to go back to the Henry Hudson, disco- the, you know, not you know, discovering coming, Albany, writing. <laughs> yeah, we're discovering <laughs> Albany. Yeah, uh, that's that, that's really what the, the what this, the chapter I'm writing right now, mm. and <clears throat> it's a. Uh, um, when you when, when I move forward, I'll get into Jefferson and. Uh, um, and Burr, and uh, uh, the, that, that election of 1800 when Jefferson ran for president. And um, that was uh, when the, the way Burr uh, manipulated the, the populace. And, uh, and it, it was, it's very like uh, the way Dan O'Connell, the Albany boss, f- who was so successful from... Uh, and running Albany from 1921 until he died in 1973 or something, and uh, 77, I guess he died, and uh, and that that was um, there's a there's a, a built-in sense of corruption <clears throat> into in the system that was maybe probably wasn't established by Burr, but it, but it was. Uh, brought to a, a, a very workable format by Burr, and uh, and that's uh, you know so it's it it, it it's a it's a natural flow. Uh, <laughs> Albany learned its polit- political lessons uh, very early on in this game. <laughs> you have to be carefully taught, as we say and, in, the, and, in, uh, in, in the American music. And Albany was such a, a player in in that in that election, and and Jefferson becoming president and, and in the formation of the of the party. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, David had a question, I think. <laughs> I do. Wanted to talk about some of your, your past and some of your t- friends and teachers. Now, it's 
rather well known that another writer, um, your teacher at one point, gave you an enormous break. And of course, that was Saul Bellow, one of the greatest writers America's ever known. And he too is so steeped and associated with place. Can you give us just a little idea or background on your relationship with him and whether or not you talked about writing from one's place of origin? Well, I was uh, I was reading Bellow when he came uh, down to Puerto Rico. I was running a newspaper down in Puerto Rico. I was uh, we had just started the San Juan Star in 1959. Uh, <clears throat> Two other guys and myself, uh, Bill DeVillier and Andy Viglucci. Bill was the editor-publisher, and I was a managing editor. Andy was the city editor. Andy and I were buddies from Albany. DeVillier was from uh, um, over in Williamstown. Um, um, and he... Um, uh, he was a great newspaper man, and... Um, we won the Pulitzer for uh, his editorial writing on the first year of our operation. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, that uh, was... Um, we ran a story in the paper that Bellow was coming down to teach. Um, he was going to come to the University of Puerto Rico at Rio Piedras and, uh, and brought down by a fellow named Keith Botsford. <coughs> who was a buddy of his, and uh, um, they were working on a, a magazine together and uh, wound up over in uh, Boston, at Bo uh, Boston University together in, in the late years, in the final years. But uh, when, when uh, we ran the story, it said that he was accepting manuscripts for a, a course in uh, um, writing. And I had started this novel about Albany, and um, so I submitted it to him, and he accepted me. <laughs> he also accepted two of my buddies, uh, one was a, a black woman who was a very good newspaper woman, and uh, uh, another fellow who was working for a public relations operation in Puerto Rico, and uh, the nutcase. <laughs> but, a, but, a, but a good friend of mine is as crazy as a, I won't say it. You said uh, it. You said nutcase. Yeah, well, but, uh, but um, anyway, um, we all got taken, in, and we never had a class together except one, the first meeting, and, uh, and then we met individually with Bellow, and you'd give him a piece of work, and then he would uh, either read it uh, on the spot, if it was short, or read it next time, and then you could, you talked about whatever you were working on. How great. And uh, and it was just one-on-one -on -one in, the, in the faculty club, and uh, occasionally we went to dinner or something, and... Uh, um, uh, and he, we got to be friendly, and he came over, and, and a funny thing, that I, he was famished, and I was cooking the steak on the, on the grill, and I couldn't light the grill, and it was a, it was a disaster, and he kept getting nastier and nastier, because he was, he couldn't, he wasn't, I wasn't serving him his steak, and, um, You had a hungry writer, well, there's nothing worse than yeah. a hungry writer. Well, we, we had, had several people. People there. Dana was cooking other things, and but uh, you know, anyway, it, it finally worked out, and and he was very happy. Uh, but but Bellow was 
he looked at this script of mine um, with the Albany stuff in it, and um, I had no idea what I was writing. I, you know, I just knew that the the only readings I'd had was on that horrible first novel, which got horrible reactions, and and, uh, and I threw it away. And so, I, I mean, I had a couple of friends who would read a short story once in a while. But um, Bello read this, and um, and he said, oh, well, there's some good stuff in here. This is, you got a lot of, he said, but mm-hmm. this is really, you know, you're saying everything twice. Uh, it, it's mm-hmm. very fatty. It's clotty, uh, and it's uh, you're, you're you're misusing words. It's not you're not being precise. <laughs> so, I mean, what else could he say? Uh, forget about it. You know, don't take up the, um, bowling. <laughs> but uh, but he didn't say that. So I I went home that night and I I got to work on it and I I rewrote it. It was about I don't know thirty pages, something mm-hmm. like that. And maybe it was maybe it was more maybe it was thirty or forty, and there were a couple of sections, two different characters at least I think, and a kind of a general introduction to the novel, but I I pared it down. I took all the fat out. I took I unclotted the clots, and uh, uh, I I got very precise with my language, and uh, I. I I cut away the second time uh, uh, I'd say a, th- a thing and, and stop. I'd say it once, and that uh, <clears throat> uh, seemed to be enough. And anyway, the next session I gave it to Saul, and he sat down and he read it. In, 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 we were sitting there in the, in the faculty club, and he said, "This is terrific." He said, "This is publishable," oh. um, and. Uh, so you know what else Use it did to I a writer's ears. <laughs> I just uh, floated up uh, around uh, the ceiling of the the writers uh, the uh, the faculty club for about twenty minutes, and uh, and then when I settled down, I I went home and bought a bottle of champagne and uh, had a party with a, f- a couple of neighbors and Dana and uh, and. Uh, celebrated the fact that I was a, a writer. Publishable. <laughs> did you ever talk about place? Did you ever talk about, did he say, you know, stick to your own backyard or any advice like that? Uh, I don't think we ever got into that okay. particular strain, but, you know, it was, it was um, what I was doing was um, uh, writing about what I knew and my sense of place. And, there you go. And, and he, you know, I... I mean, we had talked about it, talked about Chicago, mm-hmm. talked about—I uh, was reading uh, Henderson, the Rain King at the time, and he was writing about Africa, the sense of place that he invented totally. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, um, go ahead. So let me ask you then, it, so let's talk about this a specific sense of place in, in Albany, in, in your Albany, but also in— True Albany and absolute historic Albany. We vote the dead. We we they voted the dead for years, and they vote early and often in Albany. And voting is a vocation for which you get paid in Albany. And one of the obstacles we face when we write um, is worrying about what our relatives will think. You know, when we don't want, especially in memoir. But this is fiction. Did you ever worry what Albany might think after being bathed in such sunshine? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't. didn't uh, I mean, I obviously I thought about it. Yeah. How could you not? 
but I I decided that I don't I didn't care whether it. There you go. That, that it was uh, what I was going to tell tell it the way it was, and that was a, that was the whole point of writing it, you know, to 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 get inside it. You know, I'd been trying to from um, when when I came back to Puerto Rico from Puerto Rico to Albany, and my father got sick, and uh, in 1963, my mother had died in '60, and uh, and my father in 63 was was sick and he wouldn't get out of bed and he wouldn't see a doctor or he wouldn't go to the hospital and my aunt couldn't get him his sister I couldn't get him out of bed and and uh, and so she called one of my buddies who was a cop and uh, Teddy Flint and Teddy was uh, really a great friend of mine he was like a brother and uh, um, and uh, we grew up together for the whole of our childhood, and uh, and he went up and he couldn't move him. My father had called Teddy the night uh, when my mother died. Uh, the first person he called was Teddy to to come and get some help. And um, so Teddy called me up, and uh, I was working the city desk, and uh, it was a Sunday, and she was going to mass, and she collapsed with a heart attack and died right on putting on her hat mm. and Eesh. and so um, I went home and and I saw my the condition of my father and I realized that he he was, he was uh, in trouble so I decided I would uh, go back home and get him straight and uh, and I, I, I would have to you know really move up for a while and uh, it was sort of getting, uh, you know, saturated with Puerto Rico life on the rock, mm-hmm. and, uh, and so I, uh, I, I, I didn't necessarily look forward to it. I thought I might get trapped in, you know, into the the home place again, and uh, when I had gotten away from the city, and I didn't want to be there, and uh, I just felt it was a dead end in so many ways. But I went back, and I got my old job back at the paper. It was always there available to me. The publisher had always kept it open for me. So I said, all right, I want to come back, and I'll work part-time. That's what I was doing in Puerto Rico. I'd, I'd quit being the managing editor, and I just was, just was writing novels and f- five days a week. And and so that's what I went came up in Albany, and I did. And when I came up, it was like a, the first... The first thing I got assigned to do was uh, a, a history of the city. There the, you go. The city editor said to me, "Why don't you do a history of the neighborhoods?" And uh, and um, there, <laughs> so I mean, it it could it couldn't have happened. It was providential. Yes, it was. Um, I wanted to do this because I realized how little I knew about the city as I was writing about it. And, I, you know, now in this novel that, I, that Bello thought was fatty and clotty but wonderful and publishable. Uh, <laughs> that could be the name of a really nice set of kittens, fatty, clotty, wonderful, and publishable <laughs> in one of your children's stories. And when, 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 when I was... Um, um, I was trying to write it and trying to go back, and I, I, all I had was one picture book. It was a guy who put it together um, 
uh, and, and was selling it um, for a couple of dollars. And it was these old photographs that had been thrown away by the Times Union. Mm -hmm. And he put them all together in, in, in a uh, book called Old Albany, Volume 1. And he actually put out about five volumes or something like that, maybe six. Um, and he, he, they were very successful, and uh, you know, in a minor way, but very, very popular with, with uh, antiquarians and like myself. And I, I went uh, uh, through that book page by page and studied the, the way the history, the way the city, the way the docks looked in uh, 1840 and then how they looked in 1928 and, and what, on, what the change was in my own neighborhood uh, with, the, with the, <clears throat> all the lumber mills, the 42 lumber mills in my neighborhood. I, I never understood it when I was, was a kid, but uh, I got to know, understand that we were the white pine center of the world. Oh, yes, we were. <laughs> Absolutely. So the historical research really helped a lot. But um, how about when you—your you, uh, your work isn't limited to Albany. Your work—you know, this. I've read your— your work from Cuba, I've read your work from Puerto Rico, I've read you have this remarkable piece about the painter Edward Hopper in a book called Edward Hopper and the American Imagination. You've written the liner notes for Frank Sinatra, so clearly you're not, you know, just yeah. just situated in Albany. But I, I wonder about this diversity, um, you know, this remarkable breadth. You come from Albany, you've written about things all over the world. Has the diversity always fed and has it nourished you? to go so wide in your in your writing you know these things that I write about uh, they usually fall in my lap I mean um, the um, uh, somebody I can't remember who it was thought one of my novels reminded him of Edward Hopper so somebody mm -hmm. somebody asked me to write for a collect for one of the, the, the I think it was a the uh, Guggenheim was it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever it was, whatever New York Museum put on a show, but you know, and and one of my old students from Cornell, who knew I traveled with Sinatra tapes, he was he was a friend of uh, some one of the people at um, Reprise Records, which was Sinatra owned, and he, they were looking for somebody to write the liner notes, and he said, "Why don't you get Kennedy?" And so, they called me up, and I said, "Okay." And, you know, a bigger and, fan, <laughs> Frank Sinatra never had as you. I happen well, to know. Well, that's right. I mean, that was a uh, just a fan letter, but it was also a it was a story about um, you know getting to know Frank and uh, a little bit you know in the one meeting I had with him on uh, uh, at Carnegie Hall. And it was it was just a sort of a, a, a the odyssey of a of a fan paying attention to his music for a lifetime, and mm -hmm. uh, and it was a very popular uh, piece. It ran in a, a Sunday Times magazine, and uh, against the wishes of the uh, 
repri reprise people. They, they didn't want to be scooped by their own story. But, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I, how could I pass up the Times? <laughs> how could you pass it up? <laughs> so um, the Times, it was, it was a very popular piece. And I, I got fan mail from a lot of writers, or, or, uh, uh, songwriters and musicians and, and, and I, I, very well-known people that <laughs> wrote me fan letter on that. On the piece, it was a funny piece. Yeah, you know, it, was, it was delightful. It was a, yeah. But well, I, I, those things uh, that happened, um, the Cuban thing. Uh, I, I've been uh, my novel uh, Shango's Beads and Two Town Shoes. I, <clears throat> when I, when, when people said, well, "Wait a minute, you're going to write about Cuba? And uh, what about what about how, how, Albany? Is that going to destroy your work?" <laughs> no, no, no. no, I said it's going to be about a guy from Albany who goes down to Cuba. There we go. And I <laughs> think so I that think works. that kind of brings us back to where we started. And and honestly, and it also and also and then he comes back to Albany yeah. in the second half of the book. I know so, I read so, it. So, so, uh, <laughs> well, we could talk to you all day, but I think that would be unfair. Yeah. Thank you for this. This is just beautiful, gracious, and as ever, a joy. The writer is William thank Kennedy. You, William. Yeah, thank you, William. The writer is William Kennedy, the winner of the Pulitzer Prize, MacArthur Genius Grant, author of eight books referred to as The Albany Cycle. Get them all wherever books are sold. As always, thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to us wherever you go. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. This podcast was recorded and produced by Overt Studios. You can find them at overtstudios.com. Overt